Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greg Peterson here, and I want to thank you for listening to the Urban Farm Podcast. We wouldn't be able to keep doing these great shows without you. So as a token of my appreciation, I'd like to offer you access to a list of our top 10 episodes I personally find most inspiring. If you enjoy the Urban Farm Podcast, but don't have time to listen to everyone, then you will love this list. Although all our guests have great information to offer, if you are short on time, these 10 are must-listens. To get access to the top 10 most inspiring podcast episodes, text FARMER to 44222. That's FARMER to 44222. And enjoy listening. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow-your-own-food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Josh Volk of Slow Hand Farm to talk about his experience with Compact Farms. Josh is the author of Compact Farms by Story Press, which comes out in February of 2017. He is the proprietor of Slow Hand Farm in Portland, Oregon, and has been working on and managing small farms around the country for the last 20 years, studying the systems that make them efficient. He travels the United States and abroad, consulting with farmers and researchers, teaching farm apprentices and new farmers, presenting workshops at agricultural conferences, and writing articles for publications, including Growing for Market magazine. Josh didn't come from a farming background. He grew up on the edges of cities, and his parents had vegetable gardens that he mostly ignored. When he went away to college and started cooking for himself, he became more interested in where his food came from and how to grow it. That interest grew, inspired by books on small-scale food production. There weren't many writers on the topic then, and that wasn't very long ago. Welcome to the show today, Josh. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Well, I, I mean, I think that's a pretty good start to the story there. You know, I grew up 
mostly in towns. My family kind of moved around a bit, so it was mostly Midwest and and East Coast. And mm -hmm. I I was very into bicycles and racing bicycles and that kind of thing. And just always liked to know how things worked. And so I went to school to get a mechanical engineering degree, thinking that I was going to go into the bicycle industry. <laughs> and while I was in school, you know, I was cooking for myself in college, and I had cooked uh, for. In the in my family, my mom had myself and my sisters make uh, meals for the family mm -hmm. when when we were in high school, and so I, you know I had some cooking background there, and then started cooking for myself. And I was always I loved to eat, so loving to eat was kind of the you know the thing that made me want to cook. And then yeah. I always liked to know how things work, so that was kind of the connection with the bicycles and the mechanical engineering. Was I wanted to know how the bikes worked, and I worked as a bike mechanic and. And then it, it became the same thing with the food. It was like I was cooking the food. I wanted to know how to cook all these different dishes, and then I wanted to go that next step and figure out well, where is you know where is all the where are all these ingredients coming from? Where are the vegetables coming from? Where are the grains coming from? Mm -hmm. All those types of things. And so that combined with volunteering. So as I was working as a mechanical engineer, I graduated, got my mechanical engineering degree. Didn't end up going into the bicycle industry, but ended up working in a factory. Uh, in Silicon Valley. And while I was there, I was volunteering in some community gardens in East Palo Alto. And East Palo Alto is a really uh, very poor neighborhood. It was this one neighborhood that was kind of left behind by the the tech boom. Wow. And, and I was right next door in Palo Alto. That's where I was living at the time. But there were these amazing community gardens that this organization was starting. And so I was volunteering there. And between that and having my own garden and then also taking some classes, uh, some workshops from John Jevons, oh, yeah. uh, who, you know, he wrote the How to Grow More Vegetables and I had yep. read his book. And actually in Palo Alto, was that's where their his original project was with Ecology Action. And they, at that time, and it may still be there, they had a garden store that was still remaining. And that's where I did my shopping for my garden supplies. And so through that garden store, he taught some workshops in Palo Alto. And all those things really inspired me to think, you know, instead of sitting in this concrete block building with no windows and designing little widgets that, you know, I'm sure were contributing something, but I couldn't directly <laughs> understand what it was. I'd much rather be out in the community helping people like I see the people in these community gardens to produce food, to eat good food, and, you know, that would just be a much more exciting environment. So that's what I got really excited about, the potential for urban agriculture, because urban was my context. I mean, I was really from more urban back, background, more urban spaces than rural, and and then the agriculture part, you know, was just wanting to grow the food, but not just on a small gardening, you know, kind of backyard gardening scale, kind of on a bigger, more productive scale, and, and really involving people. And I kind of I, you know, naively, I think, thought, oh, well, you know, I, I'm smart. I could make this work economically and, you know, we, we would save all this money. And some of that was coming out of reading John Jevons' book and, and some of the, the optimistic pieces in there. So that's, kind of, that's how I got started. <clears throat> and I was really thinking about urban agriculture initially. I ended up moving to Washington, D.C. and meeting a guy named Jack Smith, who had an organization oh. called the Urban Agriculture Network. I don't know if yeah. you familiar with Jack. Yep, I knew Jack. He passed away in, what, 2009 or something like that? I, I actually think it may have been more recently, but yeah. time could be getting getting away from me. Yeah. So 
it, those were in the days really before the internet. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and I had this, uh, I don't know where I got it, but I had this great big uh, reference book of kind of organizations that were um, doing things connected to food security and urban agriculture, or not just urban agriculture, but kind of sustainable agriculture and that kind of thing. And Jack's organization and name was in there in D.C. And I cold called and he said, uh, you know, I was looking for projects in Washington, D.C., urban agriculture to mm -hmm. work on. And he told me, well, I'm, I, I don't really work on domestic urban agriculture. I, I work on international projects primarily. Mm -hmm. But he said, I'd be happy to, to talk with you and we could get together. And it turned out we lived uh, may, maybe a mile or two apart, not very far away from each other. And so he, I had no idea who he was and didn't realize how much uh, he had done in his lifetime. And at that point, I, I think he was probably in his 60s or, or maybe even his early 70s uh -huh. and had really done some impressive projects all over the world but he got together for, with me for breakfast at this little place in our neighborhood we spent an hour or two talking and he kind of laid out a bunch of things and one of the things he told me was you should go learn if you want to have a big impact in urban agriculture you should go learn farming from farmers you should get out of the city yeah. and do that and it's funny because he was kind of the second person that had said a similar thing. So when I took those workshops with John Jevons, myself and another friend kind of asked him about the urban agriculture thing because we were excited about urban agriculture. And and he basically said, you need to get out in the rural areas, and, and uh, that's a much better place to learn this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I took that advice, and it didn't happen immediately, but about a year and a half, two years later, I started apprenticing on a farm in California, and it wasn't a completely rural farm. It was still kind of on the urban fringe, mm -hmm. and then spent the next 10-plus years working on farms basically on the urban fringe, so not super rural farms, yeah. but, but learning vegetable growing uh, from, from people who are farming. Yeah. 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 So that, that's a lot of the, the evolution. Wow. The, or at well, least the early evolution. Yeah. And to have interface with Jack is amazing. I talked to him multiple times on the phone uh, in the late 90s and early aughts. Um, yeah. But I never was able to meet him face to face. And he is, he is one of the epic pioneers of what we're doing. Yeah. And I, I you know, it's funny because I really just had that one interaction with him. Mm -hmm. And then I would hear his name occasionally. But he, I don't think he was very well known in this country at all, which is very interesting to me, maybe in a, in a small select circle. But, but I think it would, I think it would be good if, if more folks knew about the work that he had already yeah. done, because I think a lot of people are trying to recreate some of the stuff that he, right. he has already worked on. Yeah. Well, and there's a book, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the book that he wrote, but I have a copy of it on my shelf. Uh, yeah. I, I, in fact, I haven't seen his book, but I, I, he sent me some manuscripts. Yeah. Um, and so I still have those in my collection. Yeah. So, when it, the, yeah. They're available on his website, which last time I checked was still up and running. So, uh, oh, yeah. I'll, yeah. Have to, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Yeah. So you wrote a book, author of Compact Farms. What is a compact farm? Well, I, I loosely defined it for the purposes of the book as a farm that is producing on less than five acres. But in my mind, it really is more just the way that somebody is approaching mm -hmm. their farming. So 
you know, I could, I could imagine some folks doing, you know, 10, 15, a hundred acres and still thinking of their farm as a compact farm. Mm -hmm. But once you get down kind of under five acres, it's hard not to be, not to consider yourself a compact farm and kind of do the things that I was thinking of when I was thinking of compact farms. Uh So the loose definition that I was using was under five acres, but it's not limited to just people who are under five acres. Yeah. Well, it sounds like rather than it being a farm thing, it's a system thing. Is that might be close? Yeah, kind of a system or a state of mind. You know, it's like, do you consider yourself a small farm or do you consider yourself a big farm? You know, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, uh, it's more how you think about what you're doing and, and yes, the systems that you're, that you're using around the farm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, I, I don't know if you've seen the book Lean Farm, but there's a, there's a guy, Ben Hartman, who uh, wrote a book recently. And, you know, he's, t- he's taking ideas from uh, Toyota, essentially, the manufacturing ideas that kind of came out of Toyota principles oh, yeah. that came out of their manufacturing plants. And, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, just to talk about this scale thing, a lot of those principles are the very same principles that you're using all up and down the scale. And it's very much about, you know, the compact farm, I think, is very much in one sense about being lean and um, and using a lot of those same principles, which aren't unique to Toyota, but they did a nice job of creating a structure and a framework that other people could follow in yeah. order to make those principles work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what kind of strategies are you using on, on a compact farm? What is, tell us about, conceptually now, explain how do I create a compact farm? <laughs> what, well, the first thing you, you do is you go out and you, you learn farming from from other folks, yeah. um, and then and but then once once you've got a little bit of a, a handle on you know how these things work and some direct experience, I would say that the, the the things that distinguish the compact farm, I mean, one is that you're forced into a lot of these lean principles, being very efficient in a lot of ways because you don't have sp- space is limited. That, you know, that's kind of the obvious feature of a compact farm is mm-hmm. that you're doing it in limited space so you're saying okay well i'm going to limit myself in space and that's something that i'm going to just accept is that i'm not going to get bigger than a certain size so i have to maximize how much that space is doing and in order to maximize how much that space is doing you really have to concentrate or you really have to concentrate on getting top dollar per space yeah. and so there are certain crops that just are never going to get you that top dollar so you kind of eliminate those from from the running in terms of the, the crops that you're going to concentrate on. Mm-hmm. And the, the way that you market those crops tends to be a little bit different also. So it's trying to capture and, and uh, you know, I'm, when I'm talking about the farming, I'm talking about production systems that are that are commercial operations that yeah. are trying to trying to make money. I'm not talking so much about kind of the backyard homestead trying to feed, uh, feed yourself and your mm-hmm. family but a lot of these principles would would apply just the same so you know how how you market it is going to have an impact and basically the way that i think about it is if you're on a really big farm and you're thinking of a really extensive farm and kind of these big conventional farms they concentrate on getting their production costs low they don't worry about how much space that takes because in particularly in rural areas, very rural areas, space is not a limiting factor and it's not expen- expensive to go larger right. relative to the production cost. In an urban environment, 
it's very much the opposite. So you're, you're forced more into a compact farm frame of mind. Uh-huh. But they don't try to capture any of the dollars past the production. So they do the production and then they sell that all in one big lump. Right. So they have basically no marketing costs. As a compact farm, one of the common features is that basically everybody adds value onto that raw product that they're taking out of the ground. Uh-huh by developing all the marketing uh, behind that. And so they're getting paid for producing the product, but they're also getting paid for marketing the product. And in some sense, you make more money marketing the product than yeah. you do producing the product. <laughs> I, tell, <laughs> yeah, so. I, I tell people that want to start growing food and farming, my first question is, well, why do you want to do it? And they says, because I want to grow things. And then my next follow-up statement to them is, well, you realize that only 50% of the process is the growing it. Yeah. The other 50% is picking it, packaging it, marketing it, delivering it. And you have to figure out all of that. So if you're going to make a, you know, make a business happen around that, you have to know that. Yeah. And, and I would say, uh, your 50% is probably a low estimate. Um, Mm. (laughs) you know, I, I think, you know, if you on the the growing it part, uh-huh. I I would guess that that's closer to twenty or twenty five percent. Oh wow! <laughs> if that, mm-hmm. um, so you know, the, the harvest ends up being the harvest and packing end of it probably ends up being the largest portion mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm-hmm. But depending on how you do the marketing, the marketing can end up being quite a significant chunk of that also. Yeah. And for compact farms, the you know the essentially what I would call the overhead expense, uh, which is the planning that goes into things and all the time that you kind of do spend setting up all your systems and everything else, that can be quite a large chunk as well. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. So you have you you do have significant overhead that you have to deal with. But the the actual time that you're spending in the field, <laughs> you know, planting the seed, mm-hmm. you know, cultivating that seed, irrigating, getting it to a point where it can be harvested, um, that's actually relatively little little yeah. time. Yeah. You know, uh, so I went b- back to school late in life. I actually ended up uh, at getting my degree, my bachelor's and master's degree in 2004 and 2006, and before that, I was in technology, and so when I landed at Arizona State University in 1999, I was pretty much done with the technology, and I was looking for something to do while I was in school, and what what I did was I grew food in my front and backyard, and I sold it at two different places. I sold it at a farmer's market, and I sold it to local chefs, and you you kind of touched on this whole notion of specialty products. So I want to talk yeah. about I want to talk about specialty products, but also one of the things that I had great success with was I've made friends with two or three of the chefs around town. And I said, "What do you want me to grow for you?" Yeah. So that kind of wrapped up my marketing into, you know, a few great conversations and then de- delivering great products to them and then they just wanted more from me. So what are your yeah. thoughts on what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that, I mean, one of the things I did with this book was I looked at, so I, I profile about 15 different farms. Mm-hmm. I think it's 15 in, in the book. I, I've lost track, but I profile 15 different farms. And I try, what I tried to do with that is I tried to really look at a range of different ways that people are doing it. So there are rural farms in the book, people who are doing it well outside of any town. Uh-huh. And then there are farms that are urban. There's uh, Brooklyn Grange is in the book, which oh, is yeah. uh, roof, rooftop farm, you know, 
well-known rooftop farm in Brooklyn. So that's about as urban as you can possibly get. So there's kind of the full range of locations. And then all of these farms are, you know, have slightly different markets and marketing approaches that they've figured out over time. There's a range of ages of the farm. So uh, there's farms that are 40 plus years old, uh, you know, been doing it for a long time. Uh And then there's a few farms in there that I put in that are folks that have just started up in the last few years. So that are maybe three, four, five years into their production at the time that I was that I was uh, talking to them. It took two it took two years to put the book together. So they're a little bit further past that at this point. And I think, you know, as happens in farming, a lot of times no one season matches the next season so you have to understand that this book is a snapshot in time it's not what people are necessarily doing right now but that to get back to your question about the you know the marketing approach you know all these 15 farms there are commonalities but they also have shown a, a range so some folks are doing farmers markets some people actually are doing a wholesale component or maybe just direct to retail or what i would call direct to restaurant um, which I think is what you're talking about. Yeah. Community-supported agriculture, CSA, is another approach yep. that some folks take, and farmers markets. So they're, they're mixing. You, you know, most of them have, you know, two or three of these elements. Some of them might just be doing one, but most of them have two or three of those different elements, and so they're marketing things differently. Yeah. But they really are, you know, picking and choosing a crop selection of crops that they think they can both that they can sell, but also that they can you know, make money selling. And what I see mostly is that those are special crops that you're not going to get in just any grocery store. So it's things that are, you know, have particularly special flavors or a lot of times it's things that have really great stories that go with them. And a lot of people look at, you know, the story is part of what sells it. You know, I was listening to, I can't remember who was making this point, but I thought it was a really fantastic point that even if these heirloom vegetables don't have the absolute best flavor, and normally people pick them because they think, oh, heirloom, it's the best flavor. Right. One one of the aspects of them that's really fascinating is you are getting to taste history. It's like a physical mm. interaction that you're having with the history, the you know, culinary history. It's one of the few ways that you can go back and experience the same the same thing. I mean, I think traveling to a location, you know, and seeing historical sites is one way, but also another way that you can experience history is by eating these heirloom mm-hmm. vegetables and and finding out, you know, what were people saving for themselves and yeah. you know which which of these seeds. So even, you know, some of the flavors may not be you know what everybody would consider the best but they all have an interesting story and there's an interesting reason behind them as opposed to you know these big commercial varieties which are basically bred <laughs> for you know can they make it yeah a thousand miles two thousand miles can you harvest all of them exactly at the same time do they all look perfect and look exactly the same and are they going to be harvested at the same stage so in in that compact farm you can concentrate on these other ones and bring out those stories and be more successful in the marketing that way. Yeah. So it's a different product. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I like to really explore, you know, I mentioned it earlier, the specialty crops uh, and, you know, get really creative in what you're growing because local chefs absolutely love that. Have you found yeah. that? 
Yeah, I, I've worked with chefs for a long time, about 16 years now. I've been working with local chefs. And, and Portland, you know, I'm lucky to be in a town which has just got an amazing food culture. Yeah. And when I got here, uh, 2001 was when I started growing in Portland. And uh, when I got here then, you know, I, I feel like at that point I knew most of the they didn't know me, but I knew who most of the yeah, more, you know really really great chefs were yeah. in town, and there were a handful of them. You know, it was maybe there were six six that were really pushing the the local farm you know direct farm to to table in the restaurant scene, and then maybe there were another six that would buy some product sometimes, mm-hmm. and that has just exploded now. I mean, you, I can't keep I, I for. Almost, uh, you know, eight, ten years. I haven't been able to keep track of how many there are because there's just so many. Yeah. So we're we're surrounded by that up here in Portland. And when I travel to other places, I think that that's exploding in other places as well. Yeah. And that that's been a really great market. I mean, I think that those chefs are doing us a fantastic favor because they are willing to recognize these uh, aspects that they're not able to get from the big producers that are selling stuff for cheap um, right. in flavor, in quality, you know, uh, stuff that's been harvested the same day mm-hmm. or, you know, even two or three days before what they get, their call rates are lower. So they, they're, they're able to see the value of those products, I think more than, than almost anybody. And they give fantastic feedback also. So, right. oh my you know, gosh, when yeah. I'm working with the, when I'm working with those chefs, I'm getting ideas from them on how to use products and mm-hmm. also new products to grow. And I'm also giving them ideas. They're always looking for ideas from me. So, right. uh, you know, it, I always used to think it was just going to be me going to them and saying, oh, what do you want? What do you want? Mm-hmm. And what, what's the new special thing? But actually, uh, what I've realized over the years, it, it's really more the opposite direction. They're coming to the farmers saying, what do you have? What's really great? And as a farmer, I have, I have an opportunity to go out there and look for, for a lot of uh, new and interesting, exciting products. It can be a tough sell sometimes, but um, but we do have a lot of a lot of really wonderful chefs in this town that are yeah. that are willing to experiment with things. Right. So. Well, and the truth of the matter is, we get you know two dozen seeds and we grow some out and we harvest a really great looking product and carry it to the chef and say, "All right, you want to play?" And you know if it's good tasting and looks good and is fresh, they most often go for it. I found. I, you know, it, it, it depends on the restaurant yeah. here, but, uh, and the, and the chef's approach, but, uh, but, you know, once you've developed those relationships, I think, I think that's actually one of the most important things yeah. about the whole process is, right. you know, developing a good relationship with a chef. And if you have that relationship and we're in a particularly competitive environment also, so there's a lot of growers up here that are doing mm, the same thing. Right. And so they have a lot of availability so the relationship in some ways is extra important in that sense. Yeah. But once you have that relationship, absolutely, you bring them something and you tell them it's special and they know yeah. this is something special and they'll go ahead and, and, and buy that. But yeah, yeah. So that's been that's been really great. And then a lot of that information gets you know translated over into the, the farmer's market or the CSA as yep. well because, you know, those chefs are showing people dishes on the menu that have these vegetables that they may be right. more, uh, familiar with before yep. and now those people start coming and look for them in the market um, and so then I can start selling some things you know 10-15 years ago it was very difficult to sell chicories that's one of the things that I really love growing is yep. uh, radicchios and escarole and endive and that kind of thing 
And in the last few years, the chefs have really picked up on that. And, and now, you know, a lot, a lot of people have that taste for bitter that wasn't there yeah. 10, 20 years ago right. um, in the U.S. Which is really cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So a lot of what you're talking about today is, is really bordering on how do you make a living doing urban farming? Yeah, and that's the, you know, that's part of the, I think that's part of the underlying question that I was trying to answer in this book is, you know, saying, uh, you know, with compact farms, which may or may not be urban, but, you know, certainly urban is, is compact, you know, what are some of the successful examples out there and, and how are people being successful? And I think it's really, really easy for people to kind of make this blanket statement of, you know, oh, you know, it doesn't really make sense because it's too, you know, too expensive and urban land's too expensive. But there, but at the same time, people are doing it. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, maybe in some sense it doesn't make sense. But I think there's a lot of benefits that folks aren't seeing when they make that statement. Yeah. And I don't think they're acknowledging how much it actually is happening and has been happening for forever, basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and for me, while I was at, you know, at school for about four years from 1999 to like 2003, 2004, I was growing food in my front and backyard. I have a third of an acre. You know, I probably had back then I probably had 5,000 square foot of land in cultivation and I was making working very part time three to 400 bucks a week. Yeah. Just playing in my garden. Yeah. Well, playing on my farm and, you know, harvesting it and taking it to markets. And, yeah. you know, for a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad or somebody that's retired or even, a you know, somebody that's 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, that's a nice second income or, you know, a small income for a young person, uh, yeah. you know, and, and on a third of an acre. Yeah. You know, so it's it was amazing to me how much food I could actually grow here when I was concentrating on it. Yeah, I, I I think production is not the not the problem as much as the selling it. Oh yeah, you know, it's like the selling it take. And I mean, I think this is what we were saying at the beginning yeah. is uh, the selling it's what takes time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you can exactly. grow it no problem, uh, yeah. but the but the selling it, you know, that that kind of kicks you up to the yeah. next level. Well, my was... my own my own farm uh-huh. uh, was very similar size, so I don't have the same farm anymore. I'm working with a friend of mine now, but. Um, for four years, and this is profiled in the book, but for four years I had a farm which was Slowhand Farm, and I now use that name uh, kind of as my general business name. I also do consulting and teaching and that, those kinds yeah. of things. But Slowhand Farm was a two-day-a-week project, so it was just yep. – I, I just did it two days a week, mm-hmm. and and that was about – it was roughly 5,000 square feet, yeah. um, so very similar size to what you're talking about. And mm-hmm. I did a year-round CSA off of that with uh, – it, it varied from year to year, but it was about uh, 25 to 30 shares that were coming off of that. But very, very small CSA shares, so my, my share was a unique type of share, but – yeah. But yeah, that, oh, that was that was paying two fifths of my income essentially. Right. You know? Exactly. Well, and interesting as you're sharing, you and I are a lot alike. I have a, a With farm. A, the tech background. <laughs> tech background, right? I have a farm. Uh, the farm happens to be my house, so uh-huh. the farm around the house is my hobby. And what I do is really to you know make my way in the world is I educate people. Yeah. I'm an educator yeah. and and an eye opener and. Uh, you know, so and it, and it sounds to me like that's pretty much what you're doing too. 
Yeah, it's very similar. I, I, I continue to do production, and that's an important piece to me. Uh-huh. And the two-fifths time is kind of the amount of time that I feel like works really well for me. Yeah. Uh, and so I've just I've continued to do that, and so I still do that. Yep. And that is really the grounding work for the rest of the work that I do, which, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of that is education outreach, kind of doing the writing and teaching workshops and that kind of thing. And and then the, the other component, and I do some consulting as well. Mm-hmm. And then the other component that I've been working on, not as much as I would like, but kind of slowly developing more tools. So slowly developing more tools for for farms in this scale range because uh, there really yes. hasn't been that much available. Right. And I have a I have an engineering background and a design background and I really love bicycle technology and I think that there's a lot of overlaps with the small farm stuff. So, oh, yeah. So I I've, really I've kind of thrown my hat in that ring as well. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that ferry and what you might have learned from it. Yeah, I I fail constantly. <laughs> that means you're uh, learning constantly, right? It, that's exact that I you know that is my point. I fail constantly. I'm trying new things all the time. And the I really try not to look at things as failures. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to it, you know when you ask that question if you ask it straight, it's difficult for me in some ways to think of, you know, well, what was a really big failure because I I I really try hard and it's not difficult with practice to really just observe what's happening and try to to learn from those things. So it's you know it's like everything is an experiment and the the result whether you know something works out or doesn't work out is somewhat irrelevant. It's you know learning you know what what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. You know specific examples of failures. <laughs> I, I think the thing that sticks with me the most, and I'm not going to get explicit about any one of these, but the, the the places where I feel the biggest failures are in personal communications. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that I work on all the time. Yeah. And particularly being somebody who wants to spread information and try and oh, um, yeah. you know, be teaching and that kind of thing. When I uh, have experiences, and they happen all the time, where I don't connect with somebody who I really wanted to connect with mm-hmm. or, you know, those are the kinds of failures that to me are the most difficult um, to deal with and that, and that I kind of dwell on the most. Yeah. So, yeah. What do you consider your biggest success? Well, you know, si- similar to the failures, <laughs> there's a flip side to all these, you know, kind of look oh, at yeah. it both ways. And yeah. so, you know, with the, the successes, I would say, you know, I, I think that I have a lot of successes, but those are all paired with failures. And so, <laughs> you know, it's hard, it's hard to separate the two mm-hmm. in, in my mind. I think, you know, if I have to pick out something, and again, I'm going to be very general, but I would say I think my busy, biggest success has just been in making my life, you know, in a way, you know, setting up my day to day and my life so that I'm doing the things that I want to do. Yeah. And so that I'm able to, you know, spend time on the projects that I want to spend time on and to work with the people who I want to work with. And so I think that's been the biggest success for me. And, And there's been, you know, in some ways it doesn't, always feel this way but mm-hmm. there has been a lot of planning and intentionality that has gone into making that work yeah. so it, it it was it, it's not just the way that it's happened yeah. um, there's a you know there are a lot of things that have fallen into place for me over the years that have helped that to happen yeah. um, but there has been planning and intentionality behind that as well 
Yeah, I was uh, talking recently with my sweetheart Heidi, and uh, and just about what you were just talking about. And it's like I, I feel like if I get to the end of my life, and I'm at the pearly gates, and they ask me about my life, I will be able to tell them. If, even if it was today, I would be able to tell them I, I lived a well lived life. And it feels yeah. to me like that's what you would just that you what you just said. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, as an engineer, I was making a lot more money and, mm-hmm. yep. and I wasn't, I did not work in that field for very long, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, basically the, the one year out of college that I worked as an engineer, I made more money than I've made since. since. Oh yeah. Um, but I've been far happier oh. working on these other projects and it's, and it's really hard to, you know, put a, a number, you know, kind of a financial oh, yeah. number, a money number on all yep. these things. And, and that's, I think the hardest thing is to explain to people the the benefits of a lot of the, you know, a lot of the urban farm is because there is not a financial in the way that people think of financial reward. Yeah. It's all these other rewards that are coming out of it. Yeah. Cool. So what drives you? I think just trying to be useful. <laughs> I think that and trying to understand how things work and then to interact with other people to understand how things work and also to let them understand how, you know, what I've learned and to, to learn from them. And that, that's really it. So very simple. Nice. So I'm all about education and I have to know, is there a book that has been influential in this process in your life? Well, there have been lots of books. So, you know, coming from the urban background and not really knowing anything about farming growing up, the first place I went was the library, you know, to try and find any books I could. And so John Jevons, who I've already mentioned, I I would say if I have to pick one book out, his book, How to Grow More Vegetables, was probably the, the, you know, kind of the most influential in those in those early years. And I still, you know, his workshops and the information in that book, those still stick with me. And those are still very much in my mind when I'm thinking about my systems and developing my systems. And, and I think that that book, I haven't read it for a number of years, but I've gone back every once in a while and looked at it and it's very basic. Um, but uh, to me, very, very inspiring. So that's, you know, that was a big one. Yeah. That's a keystone book for a lot of people. Well, it's funny too, because I actually got Steve Moore to, to write a little profile. So Steve Moore is professor in North Carolina and on the board of Ecology Action. Um, and he wrote a profile of John Jevons. He works with John Jevons for the book. And, and that was really important to me to have in the book is to acknowledge the work that he's done. And in the course of writing the book, it was really amazing to me, especially with the farmers who had been around for you know, 25, 30, 40 years to hear from them that you know that they had also been influenced by that yeah. same book oh, um, yeah. so that you know, that continues yeah know. that that is yeah. that is the book that gets called out the most on the show oh it's a, it's a great book yeah. and his planning sheets you know that was the first place that i went where there was you know planning information yeah. that was really concise and that i could follow and you know the, the the few other books that I could find at the time there was there was nothing like that in them yeah. and so that was that was really the one book there's so many more books that are that are really great oh, out yeah. there now and it's it's been fantastic to see all the books that are coming out and all the information that's available but 20 years ago it was much much more difficult to find any information when I was just for, first starting out yeah that's how, how to grow more vegetables 
Uh, it's got That's a long right. title by John Jevons. Yeah, How to Grow More Vegetables Than You Ever Thought Possible on Less Land Than You Can Possibly Imagine. Oh, I think the possibly is not there, but uh, <laughs> yeah. then you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. That's the one. That's yeah. the one. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? You know, I think just to be a good observer, you know, just in, in terms of growing advice, may, maybe that's good advice in general. Yeah. <laughs> But it's certainly for, for becoming a better grower, I would say observation is, is key and really looking at what, what are things doing and then, you know, trying them again and, and seeing what happens. And there's no substitute for time. I mean, I'm learning that more and more every year. So, you know, just more, the more experience you have over the years, <laughs> I, I feel like I would spend two or three years getting better at growing a crop and you know making all those observations and i would think okay now i figured out how to grow it and inevitably the next year would be a total failure and it wasn't a total <laughs> failure because i was doing something wrong it was just that i hadn't had the experience of yeah. you know whatever the condition was that that happened that yeah. next year yeah, so there's exactly. all you know that's one of the things that keeps me really interested about farming is is uh, and i think a lot of people uh, feel this way is that it's it's something new every day right. you're never going to learn all of it and yeah. so you know being a keen observer and and you know keeping your eyes and your ears open and all of the senses all the time i think is really important beautiful well thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today josh it has been a time oh, yeah. getting to chat with you yeah I, i'm so glad to do it yeah. thanks for having me so how can our listeners get a hold of you so the, the best way is probably through my website, and that is Slowhand Farm, which is all one word, S-L-O-W-H-A-N-D-F-A-R-M.com. And that links also to another website where I have a lot of information, uh, joshvolk.com, and some of the articles that I've written over the years and photos uh, of equipment and farms that I've been to. And uh, my email address is, is uh, linked to on both those sites. Perfect. Plus your book... Compact Farms, published by Story Press, will be available in February of 2017. We're looking forward yeah, that, to that. Yeah, I'm excited to have that out there for everybody to uh, take a look at. Yeah. So you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash slowhandfarms. And that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Greg Peterson here, and I want to thank you for listening to the Urban Farm Podcast. We wouldn't be able to keep doing these great shows without you. So as a token of my appreciation, I'd like to offer you access to a list of our top 10 episodes I personally find most inspiring. If you enjoy the Urban Farm Podcast, but don't have time to listen to everyone, then you will love this list. Although all our guests have great information to offer, if you are short on time, these 10 are must-listens. To get access to the top 10 most inspiring podcast episodes, text FARMER to 44222. That's FARMER to 44222. And enjoy listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.
Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.